Welcome to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. We have a heart for you, sister, and a God-sized vision that you become a mighty, awe-filled woman of God who knows, believes, and shares God's Word in your areas of influence. And so we fervently pray Colossians 3, 16 through 17 over you. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. listening to the Dayton Women in the Word Summer Study Series through the Book of Hosea. Over the next eight weeks, our podcast episodes will consist of recordings of our content time each week during the study. Our prayer is that, as Hosea 6 says, that our listeners and those who are following along either live or from afar, that you will be inspired and encouraged to return to the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. or in the podcast needs to know. We're going to be talking about some sensitive things tonight. First, I want you to know, as you do know, we're talking about Hosea 1 through 3 for two weeks in a row. I really labored over how to uh, cover it, and I decided just to work through it in sections. So tonight we're going to cover Hosea 1 1 through 2.13, and next week we will talk about chapter 2, verse 14, through the end of chapter 3. And what we, get, what we talk about next week is going to build on what we talk about tonight. So I just want you to be aware that tonight's not going to be super heavy on application throughout, because we're building from this week to next week. There will be some application toward the end, though, so just keep that in mind. Um, I've broken it up into three sections for us tonight. So what we're going to cover, our main questions that we're going to answer tonight. The first section, we're going to talk about what a covenant is and what's special about the marriage covenant specifically. We're going to talk about the significance of Hosea's kids' names and the promises that follow those oracles. We're going to talk about how idol worship is spiritual adultery, what the result of spiritual adultery is, and then the specific results the text tells us about Israel's adultery. And then we'll wrap up with homework for session three. So before we do, I'm going to pray over us if you will join me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming after us. Thank you for your creative mind uh, and your sensitive heart that uh, thought to give us this picture in Hosea, uh, this very personal picture of our relationship, what our relationship with you uh, looks like. I just pray now uh, over these women as I feel what we talk about tonight could certainly bring up um, some hard things, some pain, some... um, some things that we might not want to think about or look at or um, consider. But I pray uh, that by your spirit we would still consider those things, that we would still look at them, um, and that you would give us a clear and real picture of what um, lies in our hearts right now. Um, God, I pray that uh, my words are just your words proclaimed through my mouth, and that I wouldn't say anything that does not line up with your word. And God, I just pray that we would see you for who you are tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Okay. I'm going to start by reading Hosea 1.1. So if you want to open up your copy of the scriptures, whether that's your binder or your Bible, we're going to start there. Hosea 1.1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now we know from last week what the days are. The days are a time of prosperity that led to spiritual adultery and spiritual complacency. The good times were coming to a close and the turbulent times were looming in the future. Um, I want to remind you, just keep this in your head. This is a literal story. This is a story that really happened. Keep this in mind as we go. It's also a picture, but it is a, it is a real story as well. This really happened to Hosea and Gomer. Hosea 1-2 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, right off the bat, that is shocking sentence to start the book. We're starting it off with the word whoredom three times in a row. And when God repeats himself, you know that he means business. John Piper says, what we read in Hosea is shocking because the sin of Israel is shocking in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the word whoredom used there is a broad term. For various kinds of sexual misconduct, it doesn't mean necessarily that she was a prostitute. We know that she was not a cult prostitute because a different word is used for that later on in Hosea. But we don't know exactly um, Gomer's history, her status, um, how, where she is on the spectrum of unfaithfulness. So we don't want to assume too much of her in that area. So what does this all mean? Why so much intense language here right off the bat? God makes himself very clear. He is concerned over the spiritual state of Israel. His reason for calling Hosea to marry a wife of whoredom is because the people have committed whoredom. He asks Hosea to proclaim this message with his life. Hosea was a real-life metaphor of what God's relationship with his people had become. He was the faithful husband, and they were the unfaithful wife. As we consider Hosea's relationship with Gomer and God's relationship with Israel, remember, in our flesh we are Gomer. But in Christ, we have the power to be like Hosea. In order to be considered a whore or a a promiscuous person, a person has to be straying straying from someone or something. And the Israelites were straying from their covenant with God. So where I want to start is talking about what it means to make a covenant with God. This is going to be an important theme for us moving forward. Uh, It's the basis for our discussion about faithfulness and unfaithfulness. So a covenant is a promise. It's more than that. It's a pledge. It's another definition is an alliance, an agreement by two parties on a set of terms. Now, there are many significant covenants in the Bible. I'm going to run through them quickly here, the main ones, just so you get an idea in your mind of what we're talking about when we're talking about covenant. So the first one is God's covenant with Noah. This is in Genesis 8 and 9. God promises never to flood the world again, and he seals that covenant with a public sign of the rainbow. God's covenant with Abraham. God promises to make a great nation out of Abraham's family, and all the people on the earth are going to be blessed by him, and that's Genesis 12. And in Genesis 17, they seal that covenant with the sign of circumcision. God makes a covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel. This is what we commonly call the Old Covenant. God promises Israel is going to be his people if they obey him in the Ten Commandments and the Holiness Code. Um, You can find that in Deuteronomy and um, Old Covenant is kind of a broad term for uh, all of the laws and rules found there. God made a covenant with David. 
also. He promised that there's going to be someone from the line of David that will sit on the throne forever. In other words, the Messiah will come from David's family. And you'll find that in 2 Samuel 7. And then lastly, the new covenant that we have through Jesus. Jesus is the messianic covenant maker, D.A. Carson says, and he's the mediator of a new covenant that Hebrews 8 describes. Jesus' covenant is one of a singular sacrifice and not continuous ones. We're still called to obedience in this covenant. We have a set of terms that we need to to stick to, um, but it's not the same sacrificial system and rituals of the old covenant. Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to get rid of them, but to fulfill them. And we mark this new covenant with baptism, and we remember it at the Lord's table. So those are some major covenants in the Bible. We don't have time to get into all of that, but you can go back and read and, and learn more about them this week if you want to. But some modern examples of covenants that we make are, of course, baptism, I mentioned, ordination, which is becoming a pastor or priest, uh, the oaths taken by our military, trade agreements, peace agreements, contracts uh, for employment or when you buy land, and of course, marriage. And that's the one we're going to talk about tonight. So a covenant is an agreement or a promise made by two people or between God and a person or people that has specific terms. If both parties keep the terms, blessings follow. If one or both parties do not keep the terms, curses follow. So let's talk specifically about the marriage covenant. Why would God choose the picture of marriage to speak through Hosea? I think there are a few reasons. This obviously is just the start of those, and um, these are some reasons why he might have chosen marriage as his picture. The first one is priority. Marriage is a relationship of priority. If you are married, marriage is your primary human relationship. It's your first responsibility. Each um, spouse must give the other priority in their lives. And so by choosing marriage, God is showing that out of all the things he has made, his people are his priority. The second thing is is intimacy. Marriage is an intimate relationship. It's as intimate as a personal relationship can get. You are bound together, mind, body, and soul. If you are married, your spouse is the person who knows the most about you, for better and for worse. God is showing here that he's not just a judge, father, creator, or even shepherd. He's a husband, and he is a lover. That's powerful. The third thing is it's powerful potential. Marriage has a massive power for change in each individual. Tim Keller calls this life-changing potency, the life-changing potency of marriage. There is a huge potential for sanctification in marriage. The influence of our spouse is huge on us because two people become one person. And that doesn't happen without you losing a little bit of something from your one person. And so God's saying there that there is tremendous potential for his people to become like him when they are married to him. And lastly, there's a future application for Christ and the church. And there are, this is described a lot of places, but I just picked a short few. Matthew 9 is where Jesus describes himself as a groom. And when he says he calls himself the bridegroom, this would have had a really great meaning to the Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And they knew that, um, that they were waiting for a groom. Ephesians 5 is the... Um, 22 to 33 is a section of scripture talking to husbands and wives and and how they should relate to each other. And everything that he says there is referring to Christ and the church. That's how he ends the section. He tells us Christ is the husband and the church is the bride and our faithful husband Jesus has loved us and given himself up for us. And so the church is called to submit to Christ as our husband. 
And then lastly, Revelation 19 says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb. That's Jesus. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. A great wedding celebration is someday going to take place between Christ and the church. So marriage, this is the picture God chooses to explain his relationship to us. That revelation passage there, that is our beautiful future, and that's the ideal union that's one day going to be realized. But this is not what is happening in Hosea. The marriage is broken. Israel has left God, her first love, and gone after other lovers. Israel is a whore. And this is the message that God is asking Hosea to embody with his life. If we look at Hosea 1.3, it tells us that he obeys immediately and completely, even though quite possibly he already knew how painful it was going to be. So let's review. A covenant is a promise between two parties with agreed upon terms. And a marriage covenant is a relationship of priority, intimacy, powerful potential, and a future application for Christ and the church. And breaking a covenant produces consequences. So we're going to head into the next section, and we're going to learn about Hosea's children, and that's going to show us what the consequences are for Israel breaking the marriage covenant with the Lord. So keep that in mind as we learn about the meanings of each of these names. So in Chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, we find these three oracles of judgment describing the names of Hosea's children. And these are warnings to Israel. The punishment they're announcing is just, but they are not sentences that can't be reversed. When the prophets give uh, these warning judgment oracles, like in Jeremiah and Jonah, that doesn't mean that um, the people can't turn around and and become faithful to the Lord and change those outcomes. But as we know, for the most part, that doesn't happen. And remember, again, it is their idol worship that is causing this judgment. And we'll hit more on that later. So let's walk through each name. Starting in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. All right. Jezreel is a thing, you guys. (laughs) I think you found that out this week if you did a little digging. What we know for sure here is that Jezreel is Hosea's child. We learn this from verse 3. It says, she conceived and bore him a son. So we know for sure that Jezreel is Hosea's child. Jezreel is going to have multiple significances for us in Hosea, which makes it even more confusing. Um, We're going to talk more about Jezreel next week as well. But for what we need to know tonight, what's important for us is that Jezreel is a place with a lot of history, a storied history, but the most important thing to take away is that Jezreel was a place where a bloody massacre happened at the hands of a king called King Jehu. And to learn more about that in the Word, you can go to 2 Kings 9 through 10, chapters 9 and 10. So when Israel heard the word Jezreel, just in conversation, that would have been synonymous with the word bloodshed in their minds. Okay, so naming his child Jezreel was like naming your child Auschwitz or Columbine. Okay, so the word Jezreel would have immediately taken them to this bloody incident. More on that in a second. God says here that he's going to end the northern kingdom, and break their bow. So that's the judgment that he's talking about here. And breaking the bow, talking about like a bow used in battle. Breaking a bow was a sign of defeat in battle. When you beat someone in a battle, you break their bow to show that you've, you've won. And so normally God uses this language when he's talking about Israel's enemies. He says he's going to break a serious bow or, or 
Babylon's bow or something like that. Um, but here he's talking about breaking Israel's bow. So Israel's going to be left defenseless, and God is going to be the reason for that. So back to Jezreel. Anyone who would have heard the name Jezreel, Hosea said, hey, these are my children, this is Jezreel, they would have immediately been appalled to hear that. But this would likely have given Hosea a lot of opportunities to explain Jezreel's name and to warn people about the coming judgment. Okay, so when you think of Jezreel, think of bloodshed in this scenario. Next week, we will talk about how God turns that around and redeems the name Jezreel. But for now, keep this first picture in mind. So, Hosea's first son, Jezreel, bloodshed. His second child is a daughter. Her name is No Mercy. And she may or may not have been Hosea's child. Verse 6 only says that she conceived again. So we aren't sure. No Mercy would also have been a startling name, a tragic name. It's like naming your child No More Chances or We Don't Care or We Gave Up. That's, that's what it would have meant um, to hear in this time. So in order to know the significance of the name no mercy, I think that we need to define mercy. Mercy is compassion shown in tangible ways. It's active. I like this definition by Philip Towner. He says, mercy is the quality in God that directs him to forge a relationship with people who absolutely do not deserve to be in relationship with him. Now the word here used in Hebrew is rasham for mercy. And that means to love deeply, to have a tender affection, to have pity on, to cherish or to soothe. And interestingly enough, the word, the word is also used at times for womb or bowels, when it's referring to the feeling you have um, toward a baby in your womb or in the pit of your stomach when your heart is kind of turned towards someone in compassion, that like deep gut feeling that you have when your um, heart is turned towards somebody. So God is saying then, if that's mercy, God is saying, I'm not going to be taking any compassionate actions toward them for a time. I'm not going to be moved to help them or soothe them for a time. But then he says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. So in the midst of these judgment, he declares that, again, he will show mercy and all is not lost. But he says he's going to save them with himself and not by the sword or war or horsemen. And this reminds us uh, that salvation is from God alone. God is the only one who has the power to save. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And God shows us the same mercy, ultimately, on the cross where he sent Jesus to save us and make things right. It's important for us to understand this concept of mercy and compassion. It's going to be a theme throughout the book. So Jezreel... No mercy. And then Hosea's last child is called not my people. Now the term my people is a term of endearment that God uses. But here it's in reverse. It's a reversal of what we read in Leviticus 26, 12. He says, and I will walk among you. This is God talking. And I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. So this is like naming your child not mine or not related or orphan. And we don't know uh, if not my people was Hosea's child or not. But it would have been a very um, painful name to have if that child was actually not Hosea's and very difficult to live under. And that's a... that's the feeling that God wanted to evoke out of Israel. 
So God is taking away this term of endearment that he has for them for a time, and he's pulling back from intimacy with them. And this is not my people phrase. It's going to come up again for us next week. So we're going to unpack it a little bit more there. So hang on tight to that, and we'll get to it a little bit more next week. So Jezreel, no mercy, not my people. These are painful judgments. Painful to Hosea because he has to live them, but painful for Israel to hear. But what follows them are some promises. So we are going to look at verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 1. So I'm going to read that. Yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for a great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and say to your sisters, you have received mercy. So first we find a promise in verse 10 that the people will increase. The sand of the sea is an Abrahamic reference. Go back to Genesis twenty-two seventeen. It says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So it's like God is saying here, don't worry. There's hope. I'm still going to keep all my promises. They're older than the law. Hold on and trust me. Next, we find a promise that not my people will become children of God. This is the first mention that we get of the parent-child picture. God's going to use that some more in Hosea. God as the father, Israel as his firstborn. And here is a complete reversal of the promise and a promise that God is not going to forsake them forever. So this is the first reversal that we find from not my people to children of God. Again, we'll see it later, not my people to my people. Next, we find a promise of unity. The northern and southern kingdoms are going to unite as one. Jeremiah 50 verse 4 echoes this. It says, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come. And they shall seek the Lord, their God. And isn't that what God is saying that he wants? He says he wants them to come back to him, right? So that's beautiful. And Zechariah 10, um, some excerpts from Zechariah 10. He says, I'll strengthen the house of Judah, and I'll save the house of Joseph, and I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them. There's that mercy, compassion phrase. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord, their God. And I will answer them. I will whistle for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them and they shall be as many as they were before. I just love that so much, you guys. I love it. He will whistle them in and gather them in. It's beautiful. And then lastly, we find a promise that Israel is going to receive mercy. A complete reversal of the no mercy judgment. All is going to be set right. So Israel will be judged but not forever. God is a promise keeper and he will be faithful no matter what his people do. Theme we're going to hear over and over. God is a promise keeper and he will be faithful no matter what we do. So we're going to move into the next section. Hosea 2, 2 through 13. Hosea 2.2 says, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. So we're back to the judgment again. The focus is shifting from the children, the children and their names, to mother. And this mother term is meaning mother Israel. And the children that God is asking to plead with their mother, 
Mother Israel are the individual Israelites. Okay, so verse 2 here is showing God's passion for his people and how deeply wounded he is by their unfaithfulness. He's feeling betrayal really deeply. But unlike humans, who, how do we usually respond to betrayal? We get angry, we get resentful. God responds with mercy. None like him. In the end of verse 2, God is calling Israel to put away her whoring and her adultery. So why is idol worship adultery? Take what we talked about, about covenant and about marriage, and begin to apply with me all of that to the concept of idol worship here. So if God is our husband, spiritual adultery is cheating on God with another God. This is what Israel was doing with Baal. We talked about this last week. We talked about what their spiritual adultery looked like, specifically with Baal, but what does it look like for us? It could look like an actual God, like Baal. There are actual people in the world alive today who worship Baal today. Wikipedia will tell you that. It could be some other religious figure that people follow or trust in, but anything can become a God in our lives. So we can put our trust in things like science, government, nature, other people, ourselves, material things, anything apart from God. And when we prize these things more than we prize God, we are idolizing them. We are having another God before God. Another way of saying it is idol worship is putting ourselves into the arms of something, giving ourselves completely to something that has no power and cannot save us. That is why it grieves God so much, because he knows that he is the only one with the power. He's the one who created all of these other things that we chase after. So right now it is worth it to pause and ask the question of you, is there anything or anyone that you are actively giving yourself to that is not the Lord? Is there anything, no matter how small, that has popped up in your mind as I have mentioned idolatry? Anything that you are trusting in or resting in or thinking about constantly or distracted by? I'm going to beg you right now, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. God wants you for himself. Don't ignore it. So if that's spiritual adultery, what are the results? A broken covenant are the results of spiritual adultery. A broken covenant and receiving the curses that correspond with a covenant. So if we back up to when Israel made the covenant with God through Moses, Moses proclaimed blessings and curses over them. And the people knew what the consequences of breaking the covenant were going to be. And they willingly agreed to take part in it. So now, after breaking the covenant, they're going to receive the punishments that they agreed to. It's important to remember here that God is not acting rashly toward them. He is carrying out the terms of the agreement that they both entered into willingly. As we work through verses 3 through 13, they're going to explain more fully what this looks like for Israel, Israel specifically. But before we do that, I want to tell you my story. This week, um, in fact, three days from now, my husband and I are going to celebrate 10 years of marriage. So um, what I'm about to share with you is incredibly poignant for me and an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness. But the happy ending is not what I'm going to focus on today. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about the not-so-happy part. About um, 10 years ago, I was a newlywed and a fairly new Christian. 
And I had just married what I understood to be the man of my dreams, which I would say now. Um, We had just moved here to Dayton um, in our first Air Force assignment, and I was fresh out of college. I was looking for a job. It was 2008. There were no jobs. (laughs) My husband was in school all day getting um, his degree, and I was alone um, most days and nights, and things were not turning out the way that I had pictured. So flashback to a year or so before, when I was still in college, uh, my husband, soon-to-be husband, and I were in a long-distance engagement. I was interning at a PR firm in Philadelphia, and I had developed a close relationship with a coworker at my office, but I had convinced myself that Getting married and moving to another state would fix all of those nagging thoughts that I was having about him. Well, what do you think happened when I was alone in my house all day in Dayton? I returned to my old habits. I went in search of love and relationship outside of my marriage. And I became emotionally attached to another man. And I was Gomer before I knew who Gomer was. But you know God. And so you know what he did. He intervened and he disciplined me. He disciplined me quite a bit and he gave me some consequences. The hidden relationship that I was trying to play off as a friendship was revealed. My husband was rightfully angry and hurt and ashamed and confused. And I responded by running away. I ran to the comfort of a few close friends, and I hoped that they would soothe me and help me. My first two friends that I visited with gave me the, uh, the message of the world that says, follow your heart and do what feels right. But the last one encouraged me to keep my vows. And she unknowingly gave me the call of Hosea and told me to return to my husband and return to the Lord And that he could be trusted to fix the mess that I made. And by the grace of God, my husband came after me. Literally, he came from, drove from Dayton to Pennsylvania where I was staying. And it was just like Hosea going after Gomer and how God comes after all of us. And he met me and my brokenness and he forgave me. And then we began the difficult work of practically restoring our marriage. And it was painful and it didn't come without consequence. And so that is where I want to land tonight. I want to talk about the specific results of the broken covenant for Israel. And I'm going to touch a little bit on each of these, how those categories apply to me in my life as well. So I'm going to read verse 3 to you again. It says, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. So the first result of Israel cheating on God is that Israel is humiliated. She's stripped naked and returned to The helplessness of infancy. Ezekiel expands on this idea. He says Israel will be stripped of her clothes and her jewels and left naked and bare. That's Ezekiel 16, 39. And we find this repeated theme, the words wilderness, parched land, kill with thirst. And these would have all brought the Israelites right back to the story of their ancestors in the desert where they were desperate for water. That's found in Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. And I completely resonate with this. I was humiliated. I was scared to tell anybody what I had done. I was afraid my marriage was going to fall apart. I was mourning not just the loss in my marriage, but the loss of the idol as well. And I felt helpless, and I felt like there was nothing I could do to take back what I had done, and there was nothing that I could do. The second result that we find in the text is that Israel's children are affected. The individual Israelites 
are affected. So verses four and five, upon her children also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So Israel's children, are these are the individual Israelites. They are the products of Mother Israel's way of life. So the bread, the water, the wool, the flax, the oil, the drink, these are all things that they think are products of Baal, but they really come from the Lord. The Israelites have forgotten where they came from. They fell into the everybody's doing it mentality of their culture. And they forgot the miraculous story of God saving their people and providing for them, especially in the wilderness. Now, I didn't have any children at the time that this happened, but my children are going to know my story. And I was susceptible to sin, and so are they. I forgot that my marriage was where all of my needs were supposed to be met. The third result that we see in the text is that Israel is going to be kept away from her idols. And this is verse 6. Verse 6 says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. So God's intention here is to hedge her in. And that intention is redemptive and protective and restorative. He's keeping her from straying, keeping her from... (laughs) getting to her lovers, doing something for her that she cannot do for herself. God's going to put obstacles in her way, and she's going to feel lost. And Job 19 describes the feeling this way, although Job, obviously, was not feeling this way on account of judgment, but as a test. For Israel, it's a judgment and a way to bring them back to God. But nonetheless, Job describes this feeling this way. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. This is how it feels when God takes things away from us. It is painful. And this was very true for me. I felt lost. Everything was a mess. Everything was broken, and I couldn't find my way. Verses 7 and 8, we find the result that Israel will remember God in her desperation. Verse uh, verse 7 says, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better than for me then than now. It just sounds nice at first. But when you look at it closely, she's still actually focusing on her own needs. She wants to go back because she can't find provision in her lovers anymore, and she's still focused on provision and not provider. It doesn't say, I'm going back because I remembered how good God is and I love him a lot. It says, oh, this is not a great situation. And I remember that it was at least all right with my first love. So I'll go back there and see if I can still get what I need. So she'll go wherever she can to get her needs met. And it's easy to say a quick sorry than actually make a clean break with our old ways. Going back to her husband doesn't actually guarantee that she is going to change. Verse 8 Reads, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. She didn't know that God was behind all the provision in her life, but it is always the Lord. It's always the Lord. He's the only one with the power to provide all these things. This played a part in my story as well. I remember sleeping on our couch in our little apartment, and I was just crying out to the Lord for help, knowing that he was the only one that had the power to change anything in my situation. 
I couldn't do it. There was no amount of apology or groveling or saying that I was going to change or be different that was going to actually change me. I went back to my marriage, but I still wanted the things that I had gotten in the other relationship. And that is how I knew I needed Jesus so desperately. And then I began to cling to him like I never had before. The last result that we find in the text. Oop, second to last. Verse 9 says, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. God pursues us by withdrawing blessings. I'm going to say that again because it's crazy and we don't get it. God pursues us by withdrawing blessings. We misunderstand this all the time. It seems really backwards because our culture shows love by giving gifts. So it seems super backward to us. And it doesn't feel loving when God takes something away that we care about or we don't get what we want. But what he's really doing is taking away the distractions so that we can see him again. And he's leading us back to himself. He is the real blessing. That's what we discover when everything else is taken away and he's the only thing there. We can see clearly again that he's the real blessing. Oh man, you guys, I felt this one big time. God took everything away so that I could focus on him alone. Everything. And it worked. (laughs) Lastly, the last result that we find in the text is these last few verses that we're going to end on tonight. Verses 10 through 13. Say, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts and her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the fields shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the, ba- of the bales, when she burnt offerings to them, and adorned herself with rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. So Israel's going to be exposed. We see that there in verse 10. And is, or Ezekiel 16, I'm here. Ezekiel 16, guys. I'm going to encourage you to read it there at the end. We'll talk about it again. But um, Ezekiel 16:37 says, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who you loved and all those who you hated. I will gather them against you from every side, and I will uncover your nakedness to them, and they will see all your nakedness. And this was true for me for sure. I had tried to hide my sin for so long, and I was sneaky, and I was very good at hiding it for a long time. And it was terrible, terrible to have it out in the open. So Israel will be exposed, and she'll also be punished. Michael 1 says, All her carved images, talking about Israel, shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. From the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. God is not messing around with idols. And we should not mess around with them either. God's going to punish them for celebrating Baal. They were forgetting him. And they were essentially wearing Baal's team colors. They had... Bales, pom-poms, okay? The ring and the jewelry references are to the adornments that prostitutes would wear. It is wrong for us to forget our creator and sustainer. He's the one that deserves glory and honor and reverence from us, the only one who deserves that. So God's saying here, those feasts, those offerings, those jewels, I'm taking that all away, and we're starting again from scratch, And I'm about to do a new thing. And the new thing is what we're going to talk about next week. So hold on to your hats. All that's going to come into clearer view when we finish chapter 2 and into chapter 3. But all these results 
of infidelity. We all experience these to some degree at times because we've all been unfaithful to God. Romans 3 says we've all sinned and what? Fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve these outcomes. But Jesus experienced them instead to a degree that we cannot imagine. He was humiliated and desperate and exposed and punished. And as the song says, he bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. So I want us to sit in this a little bit. A little bit. I'm sorry, sit in this a little bit this week. That's why I haven't spent too much time on application because I want us to remember that we are born sinners. We're born covenant breakers. We're born adulterers. That is literally my story, but it's your story too. We are destined for judgment, for separation from God, and we are born gomers. This is the story of all of us. But I'm not talking about sitting in condemnation or sitting in shame or guilt, because in the name of Jesus, we are free from all of that. But what I'm suggesting here is that we spend some time this week, dedicated time with the Lord, alone with him, honestly asking him to show us where our idols are and where our blind spots are. Ask him to show you what your bail is. What are you running to apart from him? And this is scary. This is so scary. This is super scary. I know. But resist the overwhelm of thinking that God is going to flood you with all these terrible things about yourself that you don't see. And start with just one thing. Lord, what is one thing that I'm holding on to tightly to? One thing I'm too absorbed with, one thing I'm running to for comfort or for escape or for rest or for hope. One thing I'm believing is more trustworthy than you, whether that's with my thoughts or my actions. And then really listen for his answer. He is faithful to show you I believe this because he wants you so desperately for himself. And if you're if you can't think of a thing, that's the thing. That's still a thing. <laughs> if and when he reveals that one thing to you, ask him what the next small step of obedience can look like toward crushing that idol forever. So don't sit in condemnation or guilt or shame when he brings something up to you and maybe that something is already in your mind and maybe you don't want to go there with him, but I encourage you to do it. Remember last week I said that sometimes God will take us through a wilderness or he will break us before he heals us. This is that right now. And I don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to leave us this summer and not have gone to those deep places with the Lord. I want us all to crush those idols and stand in victory with Jesus. I want us to walk out of here together changed at the end of the summer. And I'm believing in the Lord for that. Even if you don't believe it, I'm believing it for you. So ask him what that one thing is. Sit and listen. And then begin to talk to him about what it might look like to walk in obedience. Come back to him. Be faithful to him. And when we come together next week, we're going to be talking about the hope of restoration and about the beauty and the difficulty of those wilderness seasons. And we're going to talk a lot more about redemption in Jesus. And so there's a lot more to come on this topic for us. But I really do challenge you with that this week, ladies. I really do hope that you won't just walk out of here and do your studies and come back next week and forget about it. So discussion group leaders, if you want to scrap all those questions next week, next week and spend the whole time talking about this, you can. Do it. Do it. I encourage you to do it. I'm just going to end my praying over us. Just praying that God would do this work um, in our hearts this week. So please join me. 
Father. I just pray on behalf of all of us. Um, we're sorry. We're sorry for the ways that we have left you, that we have run away, that we have taken comfort in other things, that we have been absorbed with other things, that we have been distracted by other things, that we haven't invested in our relationship with you, that we don't see how good and lovable that you are. We don't see how much you want us. All those feelings that we're trying to fill, those deep holes that we're trying to fill with the idols, with the created things that you made, would you show us this week that you're the only thing that fills that? Would you give each of these women one thing? One of those things that's drawing them away from you? And by your spirit, God, would you fill them with a hatred for it? Would you make it so that they don't ever want to see that thing again? Would you crush it in their lives, God? And I'm asking that, Lord, knowing that that's going to be a painful process, but knowing that you are a healer and a lover and you're going to meet us, you're going to be with us. And what's on the other side of that is so good and so much better than what we're going after. God, do this mighty work in us. Dig up the deep and hidden things, the secret things that only you can reveal by your spirit. We say, even if it doesn't look like we want it, God, we say that we want that. We want relationship with you. We want deep intimacy with you. That is what our heart longs for. That's what you tell us in your word that our heart longs for. We want to come back to you. And so this week as we study God, show us how. Meet us in your word. Soothe us with your mercy and your compassion, God. Come back in your faithfulness like you say that you will, no matter what we do or how we act toward you. And because you're a promise keeper, we know that you're going to. And we say thank you. And we are grateful for that. And thank you to Jesus, who took all of those punishments for us, who took all of those results of our unfaithfulness on himself. a gift that we can never repay. God, we ask that you would grow in us a deep, deep love for you that spills out into the world and into the, our relationships and covers everyone that we come in contact with. Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. listening to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. For more resources and encouragement about how to go deep in God's Word, visit us at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com on Instagram and Facebook. May you dwell richly in His Word today, sister.